Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, July 19th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. A U.S. soldier is detained after defecting to North Korea. Turkey's Erdogan begins his Gulf tour. Russia launches retaliatory strikes after the Crimea bridge attack. Trump says he expects an indictment in the January 6th probe. Global debt dominates the G20 meeting in India. Israel recognizes Morocco's claim over Western Sahara. McCarthy pitches planting one trillion trees to combat climate change. The UK's migration bill passes parliament. Tesla directors agree to settle an overcompensation suit. And Johnson & Johnson allows global access to its tuberculosis drug. In our first story, a U.S. soldier is held in North Korea after crossing the demilitarized zone. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, The New York Post, The Korea Herald, Newsweek, Korea Times, and Forbes. U.S. officials stated Tuesday that an American soldier, reportedly Private Second Class Travis King, is believed to be in North Korean custody after deliberately crossing the border during a civilian tour of the Joint Security Area, or JSA, on the Demilitarized Zone, or the DMZ. King had been punished for assault charges while stationed in South Korea and ordered to go home, but somehow skipped his flight to the U.S. by eluding officials at the airport before making his way north. The U.N. command had earlier confirmed that an unidentified U.S. national defected to the North Korean side of the JSA, though the South Korea Joint Chiefs of Staff declined to comment. According to an eyewitness that allegedly had been part of the same tour group visiting the military demarcation line, the U.S. national gave out a loud ha-ha-ha and ran in between some buildings. This incident, which some say could lead to direct engagement between Washington and Pyongyang, comes as North Korea is expected to react heatedly to the first U.S. nuclear-capable ballistic missile submarine visit to South Korea in decades. This is the second such episode since the State Department banned Americans from visiting North Korea without its explicit permission following the 2017 death of Otto Warmbier, who was released in a coma after spending nearly one and a half years in custody. In 2018, Bruce Byron Lawrence was detained for a month after he entered from China. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Our first narrative spin is the pro-establishment narrative from Fox News. While it remains unclear why the soldier decided to put himself in such a dangerous situation by crossing the border, his choice has handed North Korea another piece of leverage to force the U.S. to ease sanctions and recognize the country as a nuclear power. The way out of this incident will surely be costly, but the U.S. has a moral obligation to get this individual out of North Korea. An establishment critical narrative is provided by USA Today. Though rare, this incident isn't likely to become a big deal if America refrains from escalating the situation by attacking North Koreans for taking into custody the U.S. service member who willfully entered the country without any authorization. This can be swiftly resolved through sincere dialogue between Washington and Pyongyang. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 13% chance that North Korea and South Korea will be recognized as a unified sovereign state by the year 2045. Did you ever see Dances with Wolves, the 
you know, the famous Kevin Costner movie from Yeah, yes, uh, I was probably a little too young to yeah, watch it well, when I did, but Well, the the beginning is he's in the Civil War and he is a bummed out and B he has like a crucial uh, fatal injury. Kevin mm-hmm. Costner does. So he just rides his horse out between the lines of the the Civil War battle. Right. And it ends up inspiring his union troops to kind of run out there and end up winning the battle. But he was just trying to commit suicide (laughs) and people shot at him, but everyone missed him. So he just looked like he was like super brave and like busted open this battle. But, uh, he was, that was not his intent. And that's the reason why he gets that post of his choice. He goes to the frontier and the whole dance with wolves things happens. Uh. Um, so that's why he was doing that. So maybe there's some like horrible reason this this person must have had possibly a death wish like John Dunbar in uh, in Dancing with Wolves. I don't know. Yeah. Are you saying you think it's possible that this guy wanted to commit suicide? It didn't work. And now it's going to be a peacemaker, a nuclear peacemaker between the U.S. and North Korea. That would be something. Wouldn't that so would like, be something? That would be if this is the thing. We already sent Dennis Rodman over there. That's our. He's our best. We have right. no one. We have no other diplomats to send. There's no better than than Rodman. Yeah, he's yeah on so, the assist. You know. That's right. Well, he's more of a rebounder. Erdogan arrives in Saudi Arabia for his Gulf tour. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, France 24, DW, Defense News, and the Associated Press. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan traveled to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia on Monday to kick off a Gulf tour that will also include the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, as he looks to attract foreign investment in his country's ailing economy. Erdogan was accompanied by around 200 business people, with business forums having been arranged in all three countries. Erdogan met with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, also known as MBS, and the pair attended the signing ceremony for a deal in which Saudi Arabia agreed to buy Turkish Baykar drones. Saudi Defense Minister Prince Khalid bin Salman al Saud said on Tuesday that purchasing the drones will bolster the kingdom's defense and manufacturing capabilities. Erdogan and MBS also signed Memoranda of Understanding over direct investment and cooperation in the energy, media, and defense sectors. Baykar CEO Haluk Bayraktar declined to comment on the total contract value and number of systems acquired, but he did say that the company's flagship product, the TB2 drone, was not part of the deal. Bayraktar called the agreement the biggest deal signed with Saudi Arabia in Turkish defense history in a single contract. Erdogan's visit comes as the Turkish economy has continued to falter with the Turkish lira weakening to a record low of 26.6 against the dollar on Tuesday. In the first five months of this year, Turkey's current account deficit reached record levels this year at around $37.7 billion. Though Turkey and Qatar have maintained good relations in the last decade, Ankara and other Gulf nations have seen increased tensions since the Arab Spring uprisings that swept the region in 2011. However, relations have greatly improved in the last year or so, with a growing trade relationship between Turkey and Saudi Arabia, among other Gulf countries. Those were the facts, and we'll begin this round of narrative spins with a narrative A from the Daily Sabah. Erdogan's pursuit of Gulf capital is bearing fruit as the region begins to move past post-Arab Spring rivalries. The investment opportunities between Turkey and the Gulf countries are immense and would mutually benefit all parties. 
Such economic cooperation and development should not be squandered due to past disagreements regarding geopolitics. And narrative B comes from the conversation. Turkey's economy will never jumpstart with Erdogan in power as his disastrous economic policies have devalued the currency and squandered foreign exchange reserves. Raising interest rates could tackle inflation, but it's unclear if Erdogan has the tools and willpower to weather the economic storm and turn around the crisis-ridden country. Even if Erdogan managed to extract funds from the Gulf, it will not solve the root issues. I went on a Gulf tour uh, when I was... uh maybe about like six years old, but it was the Gulf of Mexico. And it was really just yeah. going from uh, South Padre Island to, to Galveston. So um, that's it's it. <laughs> not quite as diplomatic as this Erdogan thing. But, you know, the, we'll just have to see what the uh, the echoes of your trip produce geopolitically in the future. We just don't know. Yeah, yeah. It probably, it probably won't bear any fruit um, for another hundred years or so. I was not a very diplomatic six-year-old. I was pretty pretty self-centered. Russia launches retaliatory missile strikes after the Crimea bridge attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Ukraine Forum, and Understanding War. Russia launched a wave of missiles at the Ukrainian port city of Odessa in the early hours of Tuesday. Attacks Russia's defense ministry labeled as retaliatory following Ukrainian strikes on the Kerch Bridge in Crimea the previous day. A Russia Defense Ministry spokesman said, quote, Last night, the Russian armed forces delivered a multiple retaliatory strike by seaborne high-precision weapons against the sites where terrorist attacks were being plotted against the Russian Federation, with the use of drone boats and against the place of their production at a ship repair plant in the area of the port of Odessa. The statement added that 70,000 tons of fuel held at the depots in Odessa and Mykolaiv were additionally destroyed. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials claimed that all six caliber cruise missiles fired by Russia over Odessa were destroyed, in addition to 21 drones that were deployed. They said that port facilities and private houses were damaged from falling missile debris, while adding that one civilian was injured and taken to hospital. As fighting continued across several regions of the front line over the past day, Russian artillery strikes were reported in the regions of Kherson, Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, and Donetsk. Three civilians were injured in Kherson, while two were injured in Kharkiv. Three civilians were killed and four more were injured in the Donetsk region, while one person was killed and five civilians were injured in Zaporizhia. According to an analysis from the Institute of the Study of War, a U.S. military-affiliated think tank that tracks battlefield progress in the war, while Ukraine's counteroffensive continued in three sectors, Russia has also launched new offensive operations in the Kharkiv region over the past several days. All right. Thanks for that update, Melissa. We have a pro-Russian narrative from TASS. These strikes on Odessa were in direct retaliation to Kyiv's terror attack on the Kirsch Bridge, and they struck port infrastructure from which the Ukrainian Navy launched the attack. Russia will always respond to such provocations from Ukraine. Ukraine Forum brings us the pro-Ukrainian narrative. Russia's attack on Ukraine's civilian infrastructure continued with these latest strikes. Fortunately, Ukraine's air defenses successfully shot down every cruise missile. Nonetheless, a church and a hotel were damaged by falling missile debris. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they predict there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. 
Our next story, Trump says he's the target of a January 6th grand jury investigation. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Hill, NBC, Fox News, and The Wall Street Journal. Former U.S. President Trump announced on Truth Social that he received a letter Sunday from special counsel Jack Smith stating that he is the target of a January 6th grand jury investigation. Trump added that he expects to be arrested and indicted. In his social media post, Trump called Jack Smith deranged and that he was given a very short four days to report to the grand jury, which almost always means an arrest and indictment. It's unknown what the charges against Trump are. The letter, potentially the third criminal indictment faced by Trump this year, came after prosecutors in recent weeks called a number of Trump allies before the grand jury, including Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and former aide, Hope Hicks. Smith's prosecutors, who are probing whether anyone in Trump's orbit illegally sent fake slates of electors to Congress to overturn the 2020 election, have also subpoenaed Trump's former personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and lawyers Jenna Ellis and Kenneth Chesbrough, among other Trump legal aides. Referencing the Democratic Party, Trump also alleged that the, quote, weaponized DOJ and FBI target and harass those who complain about the cheaters and the massive fraud that took place. End quote. Trump has already pleaded not guilty to 37 federal charges stemming from Smith's probe into allegations of improper retention of classified records last month. Thank you, Scott, for laying out the facts. And on this round, we'll start with a pro-Trump narrative from PJ Media. The corrupt and weaponized U.S. DOJ has incessantly gone after Trump ever since he left office. This is also blatantly calculated, as shown by Attorney General Merrick Garland's choice to pull the grand jury from Washington, D.C., a district where Trump has received less than 5% of the vote in previous elections. You don't throw bogus charges at a former president in areas where the people hate him for any other reason than to force him out of political existence. And the Democrat narrative comes from The Guardian. The irony of MAGA Republicans accusing Democrats of politically motivated witch hunts is remarkable. Republicans think that Trump, the man who stole classified government documents and put the nation's security at risk, is more of a victim than President Biden, who's facing calls for impeachment over the kangaroo court surrounding Hunter Biden. The government is being weaponized, but not by Democrats. Trump has no one to blame but himself for his legal woes. And the nerds have another say here from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 75% chance that prediction markets will say Donald Trump is the most likely Republican nominee for president on January 1st, 2024. Global debt dominates finance talks at the G20 summit in India. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Express Tribune, Reuters, Business Upturn, the Observer Research Foundation, the Economic Times, and Scroll. In India on Monday, talks over debt restructuring for developing countries and climate change hit hurdles during the first day of the third finance meeting of the G20 countries, reportedly due to failure to bridge key differences and to low attendance. A senior official at the meeting told Reuters that the G20 could not make much headway with the debt restructuring issue as indebted nations refused to agree to use Zambia's $6.3 billion debt restructuring from last month as a roadmap for deals. Low attendance also reportedly hindered negotiations, as only 13 countries sent finance leaders to the two-day event, with several ministries skipping the meeting 
to address domestic issues of priority. According to the Indian Finance Minister, Nirmala Sitaraman, the meeting will focus on critical global issues such as strengthening the multilateral development banks and taking coordinated climate action. When India took over the G20 presidency in December 2022, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi commented that the challenges of climate change, terrorism, and pandemics can be solved not by fighting each other, but only by acting together. The world's 20 biggest economies reportedly account for 75 to 80 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, 75 percent of international trade, and 60 percent of the global population. Thanks, Melissa. We have a narrative A from foreign policy. The world is dangerously close to a devastating debt crisis that would undo years of economic progress by developing nations. Yet the G20 countries have failed to create a plan to help struggling nations. As countries sit in limbo, international organizations talk about prioritizing a new common framework while making little to no progress. It may not seem significant to the world's largest countries, but millions of lives depend on avoiding a debt crisis that is becoming increasingly likely. Narrative B comes from the Atlantic Council. Despite the roadblocks, progress is being made towards a debt restructuring framework that will help developing countries avoid a crisis and get back on the right track. Most G20 countries are doing great work to push the ball forward, despite the hurdles brought by China's unwillingness to get a deal done. We're not there yet, but the G20 is getting close to an equitable, common framework for all parties. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. Their forecasting community predicts that there's a 50% chance that at least 10 countries will have AAA-rated sovereign debt in 2028, according to S&P. I finally have, like, really good credit. Like, I've, I mean, I've had good credit for a while, but it's, like, really good now. But now nice. no one can borrow any money because the rates are too high, so it doesn't doesn't matter. You're once again. You're like the Twilight Zone where you've got and all your foiled. books. Yep, that's right. And your glasses all, are broken. All the credit in the world and no thing on which to borrow. <laughs> it's been said many times. <laughs> so many times, and it will be said again, Scott. And, yes, right. Well, that yeah, that that's gonna stick. That's gonna that's where's the beef. That's uh, you know, give me liberty, give me death, and whatever it was I just said. <laughs> That I don't remember will definitely stick as well. No yeah, question. Yeah, it's in my really mind. catchy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like like wildfire. <laughs> yep. Israel recognizes Western Sahara as part of Morocco. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Lamond, Voice of America, Reuters, The Times of Israel, Radio Free International, and Al Jazeera. Israel has recognized Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. The Moroccan government in a statement from the Israeli prime minister's office said on Monday, joining the U.S. as the only two countries to recognize Morocco's territorial claims to Western Sahara. The announcement from Morocco's royal palace confirmed an earlier statement from the government, which said that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had communicated his country's new stance in a letter to King Mohammed VI. The statement also said that Israel was considering opening a consulate in Dakla. Foreign Minister Eli Cohen said that the recognition of Western Sahara as Moroccan territory will strengthen relations between the countries and the nations, thereby advancing regional stability. The Prime Minister's office said in a statement that the decision would be transmitted to the UN and other international organizations, as well as to all countries with which Israel maintains diplomatic relations. 
Rabat has called for a UN-supervised referendum on self-determination, but it has never materialized. The Polisario independence movement says that it has been in a war of legitimate defense since 2020 and has declared all of Western Sahara a war zone. Morocco has had control of Western Sahara since 1975 after Spanish colonial rule ended. The Algerian-backed Polisario Front, which claims to be the legitimate representative of the Swarari people, has been fighting for independence from Morocco. Thanks for those facts, Scott. We'll start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from Haaretz. Following Washington's lead, Israel is going through with the upgrading of its diplomatic ties with Rabat by recognizing Morocco's claim of sovereignty over the Western Sahara. The move will eventually lead to the opening of official embassies and a possible future free trade pact, developments that would help bring stability to the region. And Freedom House brings us the establishment critical narrative. The UN doesn't recognize Moroccan control over Western Sahara as the territory is considered a non-self-governing territory, but it hasn't yet lived up to its long-promised referendum, which would establish the territory status. Morocco controls more than three-quarters of Western Sahara and doesn't allow any pro-independence opposition of any form. Under international law, Morocco has no authority over Western Sahara. McCarthy pitches planting one trillion trees to fight climate change. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, NBC, the Associated Press, WDRB Louisville, Kentucky, and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. When House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, was asked about climate change and forest fires during a visit to a natural gas drilling site in northeast Ohio, he pitched the idea of planting one trillion trees as part of a plan to address climate change. McCarthy was visiting the site to promote House Republicans' plan to increase domestic energy production and said, quote, We need to manage our forests better so our environment can be stronger as smoke from Canadian wildfires permeated the air. He also called for American natural gas to replace Russian natural gas to have a cleaner and safer world. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Biden administration has increased exports of liquefied natural gas to Europe, and Biden acknowledged that coal, oil, and gas will continue to be part of America's energy supply. As Democrats push for drastic cuts to fossil fuels and strict limits on emissions, Republicans have cited a 2019 study that said planting trees to absorb heat-trapping carbon dioxide could be a very effective method to fight global warming. However, some scientists say planting one trillion trees would require land the size of the entire continental U.S., while the large increase in trees could also increase wildfires. Critics believe the proposal is part of a distraction to downplay the GOP's reluctance to cut greenhouse emissions. While the GOP has been criticized for its lack of urgency and outright skepticism of the effects of climate change, 84 congressional Republicans, one-third of the GOP, have joined Representative John Curtis, Republican of Utah, Conservative Climate Caucus, since it started two years ago. American Greatness brings us the Republican narrative. Contrary to the mainstream narrative, conservatives and Republicans care deeply about the planet and are committed to a sustainable environmental policy that is pro-Earth and pro-civilization. The problem is that powerful special interests have taken over institutions to push an alarmist narrative that doesn't even address the root problems. 
bought and paid for scientists and politicians don't care about environmentalism at all. They're just exploiting climate change to bring about their plans to further a left-leaning social and economic agenda. And Jared Huffman brings us a Democratic narrative. The GOP is now pretending to care about climate change after decades of harmful rhetoric that has denied the existential threat of global warming. They may promote planting trees, but their unrealistic, quote, plan is just a straw man to deflect from a transition away from fossil fuels and strict emissions regulations. Plus, knowing the GOP, they'll try to cut down the trees after they've been planted. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they predict there's an 8% chance U.S. greenhouse gas emissions will be halved by 2030. I have a friend who listens to this show who his solution is always, let's just plant a bunch of trees and that would fix a lot of stuff. So he's going to love this. Okay. Um, Is, Is your friend Kevin McCarthy? I'm not willing to say. The UK passes its migration bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, Daily Mail, BBC News, Reuters and The Telegraph. On Tuesday, the UK's illegal migration bill passed through Parliament after a contentious fight between the House of Commons and the unelected upper chamber, House of Lords, and will now go for royal assent, formal approval from the king. The legislation is a core part of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's effort to stop small boats filled with illegal migrants from entering the UK via the English Channel. The UK Home Secretary will now be legally obligated to detain and remove anyone who enters the UK illegally. Conservative members of Parliament voted down the House of Lords amendments to the bill, rejecting 20 modifications during a four-hour session last week. The House of Lords peers, however, voted to reinstate nine of them. The nine amendments, some of which demanded tighter time limits for child detention and six-month delays for deportations, were also overturned. Deportations to Rwanda are pending a Supreme Court decision, and flights to the East African country likely won't begin until next year at the earliest. The UK has already paid £140 million, or $180 million American dollars, to Rwanda, but deportations have been held up in court for over a year. The UK government says the bill seeks to deter the more than 45,000 people who crossed the English Channel illegally last year, while the UN condemned the plan and its consequences for migrants. The Guardian brings us the left narrative. The UK's so-called illegal migration bill is an assault on the rights and humanity of migrants, especially child migrants who are just trying to escape danger and pursue a better life. This bill is an act of cruelty, and the international community must stand by the asylum seekers who shouldn't be excluded from the UK. And the right narrative comes from The Spectator. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Tory MPs are 100% correct in their diagnosis of the UK's illegal immigration crisis, and they know the government has an obligation to prevent hordes of people from flooding into the UK on small boats. Measures to stop illegal migration are necessary to not only protect the integrity of the UK as a nation, but they are also of great importance to migrants who are often forced into boats and risk their lives. Tesla directors will pay $735 million in an overcompensation suit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Gizmodo, Electrek, and TechCrunch. 
According to a filing at a Delaware court Monday, Tesla's board of directors will return $735 million to settle shareholder claims they overpaid themselves. This excludes CEO Elon Musk's $56 billion compensation package, which is being challenged in a separate ongoing lawsuit. The suit, filed by the Police and Fire Retirement System of Detroit, claims board members used their stock options to grant themselves millions in excessive compensation. The board members also agreed to forfeit all compensation from 2021 to 2023, including existing stock options, returning stocks from options that were exercised, and returning cash from stocks that were sold after the options were exercised, totaling $458 million in stocks and $276 million in cash. Board members had been accused of giving themselves 11 million stock options from 2017 to 2020 with the board agreeing to pay back the equivalent value of 3.1 million stock options. The board said it acted in good faith and cited unprecedented growth in its defense, though it agreed to settle to avoid further litigation. Chancellor Kathleen McCormick, the same judge who oversaw Musk's $56 billion trial and ordered him to go through with his $44 billion purchase of Twitter, has final approval of this settlement. Time Magazine brings us Narrative A. It seems like Tesla can't go a day without embroiling itself in a national scandal. The company has been accused of racial bias and corporate corruption, and it's issued several recalls. It's no surprise that Musk's company was violating ethics standards at the expense of shareholders and consumers. Narrative B comes from Motor Biscuit. Musk attracts a lot of hate for Tesla, but it's the best company in the electric vehicle industry. While working to make good on mistakes it has made, Tesla maintains its post as the maker of the fastest, safest, and most cutting-edge automotive technology in the world. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. Their community predicts that there's a 17% chance that Tesla will become the largest car company in the world by sales before the year 2035. I mean, I I wouldn't turn down a hot red Tesla. I want a Tesla so bad. I <laughs> Number one, I like the idea of what they stand for in terms of the environmental and the experimental and pushing the boundaries. And they're just nice cars. I mean, that's really the secret yeah. sauce. Yeah. They're, as long as you just make sure you turn your privacy settings on the on the thing that says uh, deny sending my information to you because that's how they're spying on you. But besides that, if you turn the correct privacy settings on, yep. that's a hot car. I'm not going to pretend I didn't have a fantasy the other day when I saw a red Tesla of like, yeah. oh, imagine me pulling up in that. Johnson & Johnson allows global access to their tuberculosis drug. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the World Health Organization, CNBC TV 18, Science, The Guardian, The Wire, and The Independent. Johnson & Johnson has agreed to make a less expensive generic version of its patented tuberculosis drug, Bedaquilin, available to the majority of low- and middle-income countries. The agreement signed on Thursday allows the Switzerland-based nonprofit Stop TB to tender, procure, and supply generic bedaquiline in 44 new countries, including nations where J&J's patent remains in effect. The global patent of bedaquiline ended on Tuesday, while secondary patents are active until 2027. Bedaquiline is an important pill in treating multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis in adults and children aged 5 and above. 
In 2021, an estimated half a million people worldwide suffered from this condition. Stop TB's global drug facility is expected to begin accepting bids from generics makers and is reportedly discussing the details with two major Indian manufacturers, Lupin and McLeod's, in addition to J&J. According to the World Health Organization, TB kills 1.5 million people every year, making it the world's deadliest infectious disease. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that final story. And narrative A on this story comes from Johnson & Johnson. By expanding access to bedaquiline, J&J has allowed the life-saving cure to become available to the millions who can't afford it. The company not only doubled the reach of its tuberculosis treatment, but also set a model for other pharmaceutical companies. The generic versions of bedaquiline would be available for between $48 and $102, which reflects J&J's commitment to prioritizing the health needs of people most affected by the deadly disease over profits accrued through patents. And narrative B comes from the Mary Sue. Even though TB is curable, J&J charges $272 for the six-month course of bedaquiline, effectively keeping the drug out of the hands of millions of people. Though the deal would allow patients in developing countries to access the life-saving drug, the company retains the global authority over bedaquiline and can still manipulate its price. The governments hit hardest by the epidemic should override J&J's patents and buy the pill from generic manufacturers instead. And the nerds have the last word from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that at least 951,000 people will die from tuberculosis globally in 2030. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, July 19th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.